Hello, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz bringing you another podcast here. This is an interview that I did with Dr. Joe Lascalzo, Chair of Medicine at the Brigham in Boston, Massachusetts. Joe was interviewed on September 14, 2015, as part of the AAIM Insight Speaking with Leaders column that I was doing at that time. Uh, it was a while ago, a little over two years ago, that I interviewed him, but I know that you're going to find his comments to be incredibly fresh and relevant and hopefully helpful to you in your role of leader in whatever you're doing, whether it's clerkship directing, administering, chairing, etc., etc. So enjoy this podcast. I hope you have a great day. Hello, everyone. It's Paul Aronowitz back here with another podcast. This time we have an AIM interview for Speaking with Leaders that was published previously in AIM Insight about a year or so ago. And this is with Dr. Joe Lascalzo, the Chair of Medicine at the Brigham in Boston, Massachusetts. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thanks, and have a good day. So um, tell me a little bit about what your current position is and what you were doing before that. So I'm currently the uh, chairman of the Department of Medicine here at Brigham Women's Hospital and physician-in-chief at the hospital, as well as Hersey Professor of the Theory and Practice of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. I've been in these roles for the last 10 years. Uh, before which I was at Boston University where I was the Wade Professor and uh, Chair of the Department of Medicine and uh, Head of the Whitaker Cardiovascular Institute. So tell me about your earliest leadership experiences, and it could even go back to elementary school, junior high, high school, whatever. <laughs> I won't go back that far. <laughs> um, this is timely because we have a management leadership track for our residency program here, which you may may know about. And we've had it in place now for uh, about four years. This may be the fifth year now. And um, it is a track that about a third of the residents choose to to take. And it involves um, uh, a series of uh, not really lectures, but discussions with leaders in different phases of uh, department and hospital and medical school activity. And I usually give the kickoff talk. Uh, It also involves some shadowing and other experiences. so I gave that today, and uh, I have a summary a slide that I share with them about my leadership roles in medicine. Uh, the uh, first was uh, as chief resident here in 1983-84, and then about um, four or five years later, I became chief of cardiology at our VA, West Roxbury VA, and then in 94 moved to BU, uh, where I was um, uh, first chief of cardiology and head of the Cardiovascular Research Institute and then became chair of medicine three years later and then moved back here. And then I've held a variety of leadership roles in uh, national organizations over the years, uh, American Heart Association, the, um, uh, the ABIM, uh, and, and many others that are a little bit more specific to my research areas. Huh. So. And anything of significance before the chief residency thing, and you know, in terms of like high school clubs or? Oh, yeah, I was I was president of our high school. We had two thousand people in the high school. And, uh-huh. uh, I was a, 
elected. I don't remember much about the experience except that it was uh, it was the first. Um, I guess it was the first uh, or the earliest memory about a leadership role that I that I can think of. Huh, interesting. Um, so feel free to take this down any tangent that pops up. So I'm going to just sort of ask you some ra- random uh, types of questions. Um, what uh, What is your favorite thing about being chair of medicine here at Brigham? Well, th- this is a very privileged position that I'm, I'm honored to have had for the last decade. It, uh, yeah, it's unique in the sense that um, it provides an opportunity for um, helping create a vision that you could try to persuade other people to uh, warm to. Uh, it can serve as a bully pulpit if that, that's your 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 interest for certain uh, issues that might require that. Um, and you deal with some of the brightest people in uh, academic medicine in its future that I can imagine. And uh, so what I what I um, enjoy most about the job is that last point uh, that. Uh, uh, you know, you're really only as good as your last three papers, with rare exceptions. So, what do you have to leave for your time in uh, in any discipline? It's it's your your uh, disciplinary progeny, and uh, here we have fantastic substrates that uh, that we uh, that are smarter than we are, that, that are smarter than I am, that can help uh, lead the field forward and can be hopefully persuaded to use some of the same strategies and have some of the same ethos and ethics that I do around uh, around. Uh, Academic medicine. So that, that's what that's what makes it makes me charged to come to work each day. It's not going to another one of uh-huh. endless meetings that you know, uh-huh. really don't get the issues move forward very well. <laughs> and, and and sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, what what would you say is your least favorite part of leading a prominent department of medicine? Well, it's the drudgery of some uh, committee work that we're all <laughs> exposed to, no matter what our jobs. Uh, one of my uh, Chief residence from last year was uh, uh, we were sitting through a uh, we happened to be in the same session to learn how to handle our new uh, e platform which is uh, I'll have to use, use this and everybody will know which one it is but uh, so she at the end of the year we had a chief resident grand rounds and she took a photo of me unbeknownst to me from behind she put a bubble above my head as I was sitting in my workstation and said thank God I can parallel process. <laughs> You know, I think that what what's striking, I don't mean to make it the drudgery sound so uh, onerous, it's that um, s- some of the very same problems I remember dealing with when I was at BU many years ago are the same problems that we deal with here, mm-hmm. and that in the current medical structure, are, and I wouldn't say are intractable, but they're very, very difficult to, uh, to, to, to um, address. And uh, you know, once you sort of sort problems into that category versus those mm-hmm. you can do something about, you can begin to make more judicious decisions about the use of your time. Another way to, to look at this is, uh, you know, why would someone uh, who has a successful research career, loves seeing patients, loves teaching, want to jump into the administrative side? Well, the, the positive side to that around these issues is that administrative challenges are, are really complex systems problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of emphasis now in modern biology to think about um, uh, biological systems as complex systems, that we don't simply fix all variables as constants except the one of interest and change it to see how the system responds. We can't do that as doctors. We can't do that as human biologists. And uh, very much the same, uh, a, an organizational structure like a Department of Medicine is a complex system. And uh, there are many 
dynamic forces at play that could influence the outcome of any particular issue. And um, we, in contrast to what I do in the lab or what we do as clinicians, where we pretty much, with a handful of data bits, we can pretty much get a pretty good sense of where we ought to go. In, in, in management uh, in these complex systems, that's not the case. That there are too many variables over which you have no control. The risk is far greater for the outcome of a decision that you might make because you are less, um, you have less uh, substantive data upon which to base the likeliness of that outcome. So it it requires the likelihood of the outcome. So it requires uh, much greater risk taking um, than mm-hmm. would than that might a scientific experiment or even clinical care, even for that matter. So that intrigues me, and uh, that, that's what keeps me going from a broader perspective on the administrative side. So, so you mentioned the, the clinical side, and it seems like some of the more successful leaders somehow manage to keep their finger on the pulse of the people that are in the trenches taking care of the patients or, in, you know, in your, your case here, doing a lot of research. How do you manage to do that? Um, are you still? You're, I assume you're still doing some clinical work. Oh yes, you know I, I, I try to be active in all spheres, uh, and uh, I, you could raise the question of whether I can be equally effective in all those spheres. And the good news is it's not a controlled experiment, so I can't tell you the answer to the question. But uh, but I my research um, uh, lab continues to go full throttle. I see patients uh, both on the inpatient service and uh, my weekly clinic. Patients are cardiology and general medicine cases, and about half of them are one-time consults of complex cases that are sent my way. I oversee the Undiagnosed Disease Network program that we have here that involves us, MGH, and uh, Children's, which is an NIH-funded program. Uh, and then I'm active on the, on the educational front. I uh, take morning report each Friday. I, uh, to, uh, I um, moderate the CPCs. I uh, I'm involved in uh, lots of interactions with house staff at different levels and uh, try to provide whatever guidance or help I can. And how, how often are the CPCs? CPCs are, uh, they vary either uh, once or twice a month usually okay. through the academic. And that's that's how you keep, because I noticed I think it was this week or last week you had a, um, like a CPS uh, case in the New England Journal. Yes, I would. Well, we probably put about six of those in a year, and then the interactive case series, maybe another six or so. Uh, and they are all derived, not all of them, but many of them, if not Come most, are derived from our CPC series. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, yeah, they're, 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 those interactive cases are fabulous. They're great for the residents, the students, and for faculty as well, I think. Yeah, well, I'm glad, glad to hear you say that. I know that uh, Jeff Drazen was really keen on developing those from the earliest stage of his uh, editorship and really has done a great job picking the right people to guide it. Uh, Graham McMahon first, whom uh, you may know is now off in Chicago, and uh, his uh, successor has also done a fantastic job. Yeah, it's, it's well done. Um, what, what would you say, you know, because you, you've obviously been in a lot of different positions, but what is the thing, your single thing, if you could point to one thing you're most proud of in the positions you've held in leadership that you've uh, accomplished or been part of? Well, that, that's, a, that's a hard question to answer. I, I think uh, you know, my, my career and my life, my professional life are so, so rich that um, I, mean, I, I say that both proudly and humbly, that it, it's it's hard to prioritize what I'm what I really enjoy the most. I think among the uh, outcomes that I have been proud of uh, include um, the the success of my trainees, uh, where they wind up, 
what they accomplish, what they contribute, um, include um, uh, helping develop new strategies for education, uh, include uh, new discoveries, most recently in uh, our efforts in uh, developing this new field of network medicine. We have a division of network medicine in the Department of Medicine, which is a uh, is really a complex systems analysis uh, division. It, it includes a lot of statisticians and some physicists and mathematicians and epidemiologists as well as clinicians who help try to uh, bring some reason to understanding the correlation between complex phenotypes and these growing networks of um, interacting molecules that drive the phenotype in a universe of thousands of such interactions that we can now identify and quantitate. Um, and it, it really, uh, if, if this plays out the way I expect and hope it will, uh, I think it'll really help redefine illness and th therapeutic strategies for illness uh, very differently from what you and I learned and from what we teach our trainees now, you know, which really stems from Osler, uh, that uh, there isn't a single cause for a complex illness and uh, there shouldn't be just a single magic bullet for the treatment of any complex illness, that these are complex systems with lots of interactions and redundancies. And until you can figure all that out, um, most of what you do will be semi-empiric at best. Hmm. So it sounds like you're the, the you're sort of two things you're most proud of sort of span between the educational side and the basic sort of basic science I guess you yes. could call that side interesting. Um, what would you say kind of uh, in uh, on the other end of the spectrum? What would you say is the biggest mistake you've made in the leadership role? Yeah, there, well, there, where do I begin? There, there are lots of those. I mean, the, the one one issue that um, Still befuddles me on occasion is that uh, is that you can never over communicate. That when there is a challenging issue at hand, talking about it um, um, in many different venues in many different formats, often with the same individuals, is absolutely essential to build as much consensus as you can hope to achieve to make something move forward, um, for which there may be some resistance. So that's I've made that mistake on a number of occasions. So the under-communicating. Under -communic uh -huh. Well, under-communicating, uh -huh. not necessarily from my perspective <laughs> at the time, but in retrospect. Uh -huh. um, uh, another, uh, well, my, my wife tells me that the, the one lie she knows that I told her in our 41 years of married life together was that things would get better after internship. <laughs> 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 they, they're different, <laughs> but the time commitment and the, uh -huh. you know, and the, and the things we do with our... our, our Lives and, uh, and efforts, you know, continue. Uh, so that um, that's that's a, that's a segue to the uh, a, a, a modest regret I have. I think that um, I, I, as a young faculty member and a trainee, I did, didn't spend as much time with my children as I as I uh, uh, really enjoy witnessing our trainees doing. Mm -hmm. That um, it was a different era. Uh, our kids are grown now. We have grandchildren. Um, I spent a lot of time with my grandchildren. My daughter calls me a born-again grandfather <laughs> for that reason. Uh -huh. uh, but, uh, you know, I try to make up too, a little too late. Uh -huh. How many children? We have two. Uh -huh. Wow. And how many grandchildren? Three. Three grandchildren. Two. Wow. Two by the... Uh, so you're making up for lost Trying time. to. Trying to. It's better late than never, I guess. <laughs> so. So, so there's this um, thing, and I, I kind of call it the doctor nice guy syndrome, where you know physicians go in the medicine to help people and to do good things. And um, uh, when they're in a leadership role, I think sometimes they have a very difficult time being the bad guy. They like to be liked. They like to help people. But sometimes 
there's no way around it. Um, so I've seen a lot of um, leaders make the mistake of just not being tough enough in those situations. Do you have that problem or that issue, or have you ever confronted that? I have had that issue when I was younger in, in, in these kinds of roles. My first administrative job um, at the VA um, was a challenging job. I was younger than uh, all the faculty members. So they, they had been my teachers. And uh, the new recruits were people who had been among my very first trainees. So I was, um, it, with respect to the relationships, it was a challenging set of interactions. I couldn't be best friends uh, with my close colleagues as I had before because in some respects I was responsible for some of their obligations and responsibilities uh, that uh, sometimes were challenging. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still felt the, the uh, bit of the reluctance to uh, work with my former teachers as, as colleagues and equals mm -hmm. or even a little different from that. So, um, but over time, if you want to be effective in these jobs, you have to address that issue. That is something I, I've learned as well. And I, uh, you know, I like to say that um, I have a couple patron saints in this job. Uh, those include, to your point, uh, Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa, but also Attila the Hun and Machiavelli. <laughs> and you have to, you know, you have to choose your battles wisely. You've got to know when it's important to push and, um, uh, you know, you, I think that you're absolutely right that if you if you don't draw a line in the sand at the right time, and not with great frequency now, I mean, in these kinds of environments, you, you're, you're, there are lots of very talented people who have uh, part of their success has to do with the fact that they have minds of their own and they're fully creative and fully opinionated. You have to let all that play out. But um, there comes a time when challenging issues are on the table where decisions have to be made and uh, they've got to be made willingly or less willingly with the, with the folks whom they may affect. And uh, you have to be able to get over that, that bit of it. It's hard, uh, mm -hmm. but you have to. Huh. Um, who are your kind of, if you thought of a couple of your most significant mentors in your career, who, who were those and why were they significant? Well, one uh, clinical mentor, uh, I was a student at Penn, was, uh, was Joe Perloff, who um, at the time was the chief of cardiology there. And I remember uh, he, he was, um, his area of expertise was in, in congenital heart disease in children and adults. When I took my uh, first elective uh, in cardiology, we would meet with him, the students, with uh, residents and fellows every week, either at the Children's Hospital with uh, CHOP or at the HUP. And uh, a bit of a case would be presented to him. It might just be an ECG or it could be a ventriculogram of a complex congenital lesion or a uh, some features of a, of a cardiac exam where the patient might be brought there for evaluation. And I just remember thinking about how, um, how incredibly eloquent and, and elegantly he, he dissected the case and pieced it back together, partly Socratically and highly analytically, but always uh, very pleasantly and everyone learned. And I thought, uh, you know, this is, this is someone I'd like to model the clinical side of my life after, and I, I tried to do that. And many years later, I was on a program in which he, at which he was speaking. I hadn't seen him since I was a student. And um, my wife was with me was at, at Williamsburg. And uh, and the night before the presentation, the, the uh, session, um, we had a dinner for the speakers and their significant others. And, and my wife was, I was pacing. My wife said, what's the matter with you? And I said, you know, I'm, 
I'm, I'm, I'm really worried that I might be romanticizing what I remember Joe, about Joe Perloff. I hope this doesn't sort of uh, dash that for me. And most fortunately, it didn't, uh, didn't at all. He was every bit as uh, eloquent and engaging and uh, just uh, the kind of academic physician uh, I think we should all try to aspire to be. Um, uh, on the research side, I've had uh, lots of uh, different mentors over the years. And um, uh, the first person, again, at Penn as an undergraduate was a biochemist named Don Boat, who, uh, who, uh, with whom I did my uh, senior project and uh, really uh, got deeply involved in uh, trying to sort through a complicated biological problem and that sort of set the stage for everything I've done subsequently. I've had lots of wonderful collaborators and, and, uh, and mentors over the years in different areas in which I've worked since that time. It's interesting. So um, you had these significant mentors ended up in, you know, sort of a science and strongly, in it, you know, with a foot in the educational world. Um, and more than that, probably, you're kind of what the traditional sort of triple threat type uh, model of the academician, which I've, I've read a number of things that said that that's fading away because there's just too much going on, pulling people in too many directions. Do you think that's the case or... Will there continue to be triple threats in academics? Yeah. Well, I um, I think that uh, most people will say just what you said, uh, and have been saying it for the last five to ten years that um, that it's not feasible to to be active in these areas, and uh, one shouldn't try to be active in all of these areas, and it's more important that you focus all of your attention and effort in one of these areas. Uh, the problem I have with that um, is that it, it's without regard for the phenotype. I mean, there's some people who can't be active in more than one of these areas because mm -hmm. that is how they focus, that's how they attend, mm -hmm. that's how they think through problems, and that's perfectly fine. But there's some who um, can be active in more than one area. And I think it, w where a mentor can help in guiding the careers of such people once they're identified is ensuring that they have, a fo have focuses that overlap. And let's say you know, if you're a cardiologist interested in uh, in electrophysiology, it doesn't make a lot of sense to work in the basic science of cardiomyocyte biology to, make, to sort of make an obvious kind of counter counter case. Uh, but it would, could make quite good sense to work in ion channel physiology and link that to an area of arrhythmias that in which you're interested. And not only do I think it's possible, but not for everyone, I think it's essential because um, this. I would often use that uh, that Klimt reproduction as a as a metaphor when I talk to young people as they think about what they want to do. It you know, it's a sort of forest trees metaphor that that the basic scientist knows every bit of biology about each tree or about a tree, uh, about the bark and the phloem and the leaves and so forth. Um, and, but the uh, the clinician understands the forest, and somebody's got to be able to translate what the knowledge of the trees into the ecology of the forest, and that's where a physician scientist sits. And, um, uh, and I think that what we have to do is, uh, as academic leaders is create an environment in which you can identify people who do fit into that categorization and provide the right kind of support so that they can develop their careers accordingly in a balanced and but yet focused way. Interesting. So you still believe, it sounds like 
depending on the person, you still believe that yeah. that will continue and should continue. And should continue um, to really understand disease. And in fact, you know, I would say it's in this modern genomic big science era, it's more important than ever because mm-hmm. you've got uh, basic scientists collecting huge amounts of data around DNA sequence and metabolomics and proteomics, gene expression and so forth, and they're trying to figure out how to put it all together and sorting out how it relates to disease. But the diseases they're sorting it out for happen to, happen to be the sort of DRG-based categories of disease, which, as you as a clinician know, are gross overgeneralizations, largely for, designed largely for convenience but not necess- and for large clinical trials, but not for modern precision medicine. So the, the ability of a, of a well-schooled uh, uh, clinician who understands clinical nuance and clinical phenotype to work closely with a basic scientist who doesn't know anything about that but has lots of data that he's trying to correlate. I mean, that kind of interaction is another way by which clinicians uh, can be active um, in, in research uh, in the next era. Um, sort of a, a little bit off that topic, but um, I don't know if you, you read many leadership books, um, but do you have a couple favorite ones that you've read? Well, you know, I... I um, or, or would recommend, I should say, yeah. or both. Uh, at the risk of sounding uh, uh, narrow-minded, uh, let's say, I, I generally, uh, I, I do, when someone gives me a copy, I'll, I'll thumb through one. Uh-huh. Uh, I always worry that if I'm in an airport, and fortunately now I have Kindle, so uh, <laughs> nobody knows what I'm reading. reading. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you see people thumbing through those kinds of books, uh-huh. and, I, and having sat through presentations, usually at board meetings or other, uh, another clinical committee um, experiences uh, by many of the people who write these books, many of whom are in this city, in, uh, in, uh, in our business school. I, I, I find them helpful, but only to a point. And I, I'm not, I can't say that any of the presentations I've heard or any of the books that I've read have given me more insight than my own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't mean, to, I hope I don't sound arrogant about this, but I, no, I'm not suggesting not, that I have no. the answers. I just think <laughs> that that, you know, it's another sort of how-to thing that Americans always want to learn about, you know, how to have sex, how to, how to manage, how to, uh, sort of dummy's guide to X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I think there's no no uh, substitute for the experience of doing these kinds of jobs, and everybody reacts to them differently, and I don't think they're a good and universally acceptable guidepost for how to do the jobs. Uh-huh. So no, 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 none that you've come across though, that uh, have swayed you in the direction of thinking they might be more useful than less? Regrettably, no. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, fair enough. Have you read Switch, by the way? I have. Yeah. Yeah, that, was, that was one of the... I, I actually tend to agree with you. I think it, sometimes uh, you'll pull something out you can use to yeah, kind of but, motivate people a little yeah, a down point. the road, but it's <laughs> exactly a lot of its experience. Um, if so, yeah, obviously, you are training a lot of young, up-and-coming leaders, both in your leadership uh, track within your residency, as well as junior faculty and so forth. Um, thinking about this interview as being the audience being all the AIM membership and a lot of young associate program directors and clerkship directors, and all of whom will make a move at someday up the ladder. Um, what are a couple of pieces of advice you'd have for them? having done the interesting leadership things that you've done? Um, well, I think it's important, this may not be the first thing that others would think of, but it's important for me to say this as a chair, uh, for 
each of these folks to have um, an academic interest, uh, a scholarly focus um, through which they can make a contribution. And these days, uh, for someone with an interest in education, it's not impossible that, uh, that those who are affiliated with, a, with, a, with an academic medical center. Um, it's not impossible. In fact, there are tracks and pathways and mechanisms that are being designed to help uh, bolster opportunities for career development in those pedagogical education pathways, uh, even here. Um, uh, so I, I think that uh, you know one of the challenges we have here is that we still hold very high standards about promotion and promotability. And... Um, uh, even the very best program directors and associate program directors to be promoted need to contribute in that way. It doesn't have to be writing papers in science or even the New England Journal, but contributing through other sorts of scholarship, uh, uh, clinical pathways or educational structures uh, that they could develop. I know that's not true at all medical schools, but it's true here. Um, I think the, se the second point is that, uh, that uh, as a program director to move forward, you need to be um, not just clinically adept, but credible. And that's true no matter where you are in the spectrum of leadership. Uh, it's one of the reasons, one of the other reasons I didn't mention that I try to be active in all the areas I'm active in, because I, I don't want someone to sit across the table from me and say, you don't know what it's like to write for an NIH grant, or you don't know what it's like to work in Clinic X. Um, they never say that to me, because they know that I do know what it's like. Similarly, as a program director, being clinically active, understanding where all the challenges are for the trainees, uh, being helpful in trying to sort out solutions or at least um, coming to consensus about what can or can't be fixed and why and helping people uh, uh, deal with, with that. Mm -hmm. I think those are, those are all uh, essential features. And that, that's true for any leadership role, that credibility is most important. The more remote someone becomes from the people they are responsible for, uh, the less credible they are and the less effective they are. So sort of, I guess, a counter to that question would be, how do you, any tips on how you balance? Because you're doing a myriad of things to keep your finger in a lot of different pies, both probably for your own career satisfaction as well as for the credibility issue and ability to make changes and be able to say, well, I know what it's like, so we're going to push on with this. Um, how do you balance all that? Because you've got all these other administrative components in your job. Well, I mean, time, time management is absolutely essential. I don't think anyone should seriously contemplate taking a leadership role in, in, in a medical center of any kind if they don't know how to manage time. Mm -hmm. um, and you're either born with that or you're not. Uh, I don't, I think, you know, you could take, uh, uh, listen to lectures on how to manage time <laughs> or take courses in it, I guess, or, uh, but it, uh, it, it really is an art form that's specific to the individual. Uh, the second is you can't micromanage and do all of those things, right? I mean, you, this is where um, uh, really delegating, allocating uh, in the right way is essential as well. Um, and what I mean by the right way is that you have to find people you want to work with, say, as associate program directors or vice chairs of the department who are simpatico to your beliefs and philosophy, but who are given free reign to make decisions without you, but also know when they need to check with you. Um, that uh, these are touch points that I know he'll want to talk to me about before we decide, or um, I, I can manage this uh, and uh, he trusts me to do it. So 
figuring out the right working relationships with those people who are your lieutenants is important in identifying the right kind of people chemically uh, who can work with you that way. And then equally important is being sure that the organization within which you work recognizes that they um, that they represent you and that they uh, are credible representatives uh, for you in whatever the setting is in which they're working. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of obvious things to say, but uh, I think it's the best way to answer the question. And, and sort of along the lines of finding those best people for those roles, um, I assume you you do some interviews for the residency program. And I do. Joel out with that. And all. I do. Um, what are some of your uh, techniques for making sure you recruit and sort of you know sift out the best people for working here, whether it's for the residency or departmental division jobs? Right. Yeah, I think that these um, um, part of it's sort of intuitive. Um, part of it. Uh, has to do with uh, their responses, both verbally as well as body language, to certain questions that or comments that might be a little uncomfortable. For example, when I interview people for leadership roles, you know, I often will point out that the difference between in this institution between a uh, an outstanding leader and a great leader is that uh, everybody's smart, everybody's ambitious, everybody's been successful who take, takes leadership roles here. The difference between the outstanding and the great ones is that the outstanding ones, from my perspective, can put other people's interests ahead of their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you do that? Yeah, I mean, those, that's, that often will lead to healthy discussion and uh, can figure th- some things out uh, in, that, in the course of that discussion. Obviously, that doesn't apl- apply to interviews of residents or, mm-hmm. or, uh, rep or, or fellows or even junior faculty, to be honest. Do you have any favorite uh, interview questions that you like to toss at? Uh... Uh, I, don't, I don't have... Um, I mean, I try to use at least one or two grounding questions when I'm interviewing a series of people, as, I, as uh, we often do when you know, we have a search committee for a, a formal mm-hmm. um, leader, such as a new department chair in the institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but none, none of them, some of them are, there's, there's no special one. A lot of them are fairly vanilla, like, uh, you know, what's your management style? How do you deal with challenges? Give me an example of something that really went badly for you and how you dealt with it. Uh, what are you proudest of? Uh-huh. And what would you say is the greatest misperception people have of you as a leader here? Of me. I'm struggling with that because I'm not, not sure how best to answer it. I think people have uh, different misperceptions depending upon the, the, their, their, uh, what they do. Um, I think one is that uh, people who know about my research think that that's really where I spend all of my time or prefer to spend all of my time. People who know about me clinically are misperceived my my clinical strengths and interests is excluding uh, interest research. in research. Oh, so I think it's, you know, there's the, the issue of the, 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 the dichotomous or trichotomous life that I lead and how people pigeonhole me. Hmm. Interesting. Um, 
And then, uh, I had a question that I think just sort of, oh, what, you know, so you've been in leadership roles a long time, and you've been mentored by some people that made a difference um, in your career. What do you, would you say is the, the, are the one or two keys to great mentors? Um, uh, great mentors listen. Um, they offer opinions, but often offer options. Uh, great mentors uh, support your decision, no matter the decision you make, even if it is different from what they may have suggested. Um, uh, great mentors continue to support you, no matter what bumps in the road you may have had, and uh, help guide you through uh, uh, challenges that uh, you might not have appreciated the nature of or recognized uh, earlier. And uh, great mentors also know how to keep a distance and know when to get involved. What's uh, being in a meeting with you like? How would you describe your 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 meeting running style? Well, I, I, I first of all, I, I try always to be prepared for whatever the meeting is. So if there's information that I need to know about, I, I gather it. Uh, second uh, is if the meeting's an hour and we can finish in 15 minutes, we finish in 15 minutes. Uh, and it's not that I'm heavy-handed about it, or I try not to be. It's that I don't believe in filling up the time just for the sake of filling up the time. There's too much else that needs to be done, and I don't want to waste other people's time uh, on my own. Um, I try to always inject some humor, in, not in every meeting, but uh, uh, in, in meetings at the right time. I think that helps, especially when there's some tension in the room. And um, I try to uh, uh, li listen, um, even if I know what the outcome of the situation is going to be or know where the discussion's headed. I try to listen to every perspective if we're discussing a problem at a meeting, um, not just because it's respectful to do so, but also uh, I don't pretend to know all the elements of an issue nor to understand all the solutions. And hearing people out often gives you some refreshing insight that can help solve or direct you toward a solution of the problem. Hmm. Um, and what one word, or word, a couple of words, best encapsulates um, your leadership style? In inclusivity and commitment. Excellent. Any last thoughts? No, I thought you, it was a wonderful interview. You asked lots of good questions. Oh, thank you. Some of which I haven't asked before, so that's, that's okay. always refreshing. Well, and there you have it, uh, interview with Dr. Joe Lascalzo, Chair of Medicine at the Brigham in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I could reflect quite a bit on that interview. It's one of the f my favorite ones that I've done of the eight or ten that I've done for AIM Insight. Uh, but I will say that uh, when I'm sitting there talking with these leaders in various domains, whether it's program directing or clerkship directing or being a chair of a large department like the Brigham, I'm always thinking, would I like to work with this person or would I like to work for this person? Um, sort of synonymous as I'm interviewing that person. And I found myself thinking over and over while I was interviewing Dr. Lascazo, boy, I sure would love to work for this guy or work with this man in collaboration. Uh, just a remarkably humble individual very well-spoken, as you heard, and uh, really a delight to meet with. And so I just want to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Lascalzo for taking time out of his remarkably busy schedule 
in Boston to spend an hour with me oh, about a year and a half ago or so. Thanks, and have a good day. If you have any feedback about this podcast, you can reach me through the AIM, uh, im.org website member directory, and you can shoot me an email and let me know your thoughts. Also, if you'd like to, me to continue doing these interviews, uh, now that the newsletter has been shut down, I'd be uh, delighted to get your feedback and thoughts about that as well. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you.